Welcome to episode six of Lil Muck, a tiny slice of the Muck podcast where we talk to people in the media and in politics about their favorite stories or experiences. I'm Tina Hadamio. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary, tell us about today's guest. Okay, this this very busy, busy person <laughs> that we have on the phone. And I'm going to read his bio from his website because I feel like the best bio is one we write ourselves, right? <laughs> so Albert Samaha is an investigative journalist at BuzzFeed News and author of Never Ran, Never Will, Boyhood and Football in a Changing American Inner City, which was a finalist for the 2019 Penn ESPN Literary Sports Writing Award and winner of the New York Society Library's 2019 Hornblower Award, which I'm sure that really excites you, Tina. Yes. Big writer over here. Um, His story on a narcotics unit in Mississippi led to a police captain's resignation in 2015. His story on a Bronx Bronx murder helped get a wrongfully convicted man freed from prison in 2017. And his 2018 story on a teenager who, who accused two NYPD detectives of rape led six states to pass bills strengthening their police sexual misconduct laws. I am an utter complete failure in my life, Tina, <laughs> compared to this wonderful man. So welcome, Albert. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. You have done such incredible, incredible investigative work. And now you currently write for BuzzFeed. So can you tell us a little bit about that, what it's like working for BuzzFeed? I know a lot of times people think of the quizzes, you know, uh, who's your Disney princess spirit animal (laughs) and things like that. But BuzzFeed also does like such incredible investigative work too. So how, what's it like working for them? Yeah, it's really great. I mean, I think I was lucky enough to be one of the kind of early waves of uh, journalists who were hired uh, there like in 2014. Um, And I actually remember thinking I was, I was at a local newspaper at the time, the village voice and I kind of had the same sort of notions about BuzzFeed that, that kind of a lot of people had at the time and maybe even still now. Um, but it's just sort of, you know, the, the, the editors there to sort of show that they had this vision for, for doing hard news, for doing investigative reporting. And, and I think one of the kind of advantages we've had is because, you know, we don't have to be the New York Times, the Washington Post, and be the paper of record to cover everything under the sun. We're sort of able to channel the resources we have into sort of the biggest stories we think um, where we could actually make an impact. Um, right. so, so I think the sort of creative freedom to, to sort of chase the biggest stories that 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 um, that there are kind of in the world has been a probably that's probably the best part of working here is that um, kind of there's no swing too big. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, it is. Um, so in, I really, I read a couple of the stories that we just mentioned in your, in your um, introduction. Um, the one that I thought was specifically uh, very moving was the story you covered um, in 2018 when the teenager Anna Chambers um, was mm-hmm. raped by two NYPD detectives. Um, eventually these two officers resigned, but the charges also against them were dropped, which I was found out after reading your story. And I was really disappointed in that, but this case was you know, reading about how they just the the defense attorneys just dragged her and went through her social media and scoured it to look at posts she put up when she was 13 years old. And when that was part of like, this isn't a credible person, it was so um, devastating. And she seemed like such a strong person, even though she had gone through this horrible event. Um, what did you think about those charges being dropped against these officers? Well, it really did strike me as sort of a real tragic irony that she had led to all these law changes, not only in her state, New York, but in five other states. And yet, because those laws she changed 
did, you know, did not exist at the moment that the crime happened, she she wasn't yeah. subject to those laws, right? Like those cops, those, those cops weren't right. subject to the laws that she later changed. So, so sort of there's that irony there, and sort of in, in, in defense of the, the district attorney, the Brooklyn district attorney's decision, it it, it it sort of reflects the way our paradigm of how we how we how we prosecute sexual assault cases, how we treat sexual assault survivors, begins right. from this. Um, perspective of, of doubt, where it's where kind of their their histories and their records seem to matter more than the histories and records of the people who are accused, um, and and it's complicated, right? Because I think a lot of people who advocate for 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 stronger uh, sexual misconduct laws and protections also advocate for. A, a more reasonable justice system that is not rooted in kind of the tough on crime policies of sweep everybody up and put everyone in jail, right? Like the, the idea is not just that we should put everyone in jail, but that we should have, you know, restorative justice and we should have all these other, um, you know, alternative means for people to, to, to find redemption other than just going to prison. Um, and yet, you know, the other side of the coin is that while our criminal justice system has gone exceptionally hard on poor people, particularly black and brown people, particularly, Right. There has, there's kind of been the opposite response in recent, you know, over the past decade on how we approach um, sexual assault cases, um, which, you know, obviously those two things come from the same coin, right? This idea that idea of, of kind of mainstream status quo of, of patriarchy of whiteness sort of trickling down to all those policies. Well, even with the the police officers that you know, when you were talking right when in the in the article that you wrote and talked about how some of these states they couldn't even fathom approaching that the police could have misconduct in this way, and so it was actually an attack. How the police unions would take it as an attack on the police if you even approach the subject of we want to make it so it's. You cannot have you cannot have sex with somebody that's in custody. You know, there's no such thing as consensual, obviously. But they wanted right. to make it a law, and these police unions would be up in arms about it. And you would think that they would be okay with that. That's protecting the police too. You know, like it would be like this is the wrong thing to do. Why would they be against something so? It seems like it's a no brainer. That, that that's that's a really important, a really good question. Uh, I mean, I, I think police unions typically. Have taken the position of of automatically taking the side of of, of the officers, no matter what they do. I think that was the thing that was a bit right. um, revolutionary, surprising about what we saw after you know the George Floyd video came out. Is that police the police community was, was was sort of distancing themselves and sort of saw a bit of progression in the police community saying, "Well, these are bad apples, you know, you know, spend their actions." In this particular case, I think what was different was that was that the the, the officers. I mean, in, in a way, this is just like 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 many sexual assault cases. This was a, a he said she said case, right. like in letter of the law. And so, for the police union to to not take the side of the officers would be for the police union to be saying that what the officers were saying was not true, without them having any particular hard evidence other than the word of um, of the survivor. So, I think because they sort of didn't have any evidence in their face to undermine kind of their interpretation of the officer's side of the story. They sort of just took that default position of defending the officer. It's so, it's so awful. I, I was telling Hillary I had a, I didn't have an experience like that 
uh, particular woman, but I did have an experience when I was younger of being pulled over by an officer. He had me go down a, a, a side street and had me get out of the car. And he was like, I need you to bend over to see why I pulled you over. And he brought me to the back so that I could look at my license plate in the little light above the license plate had gone out, that little light bulb. And he's like, why don't you bend over and take a look? And I was down a dark street, frightened. And he kept me there. I think it was like a good half an hour asking me my favorite color and what I like to do. And I was scared to death. Um, And then he finally let me go. And so, you know, I didn't call anyone. I didn't do anything because who am I going to call to say this cop did this, you know? So it's, it's, it's a scary situation for anyone, mm-hmm. and especially when people are in positions of authority with a he said, she said, there's no place to go. That is really harrowing. That is terrible that that, that happens. I mean, and, and I mean, all the more scary, right? It's like this idea that we have seen a long track record of our sort of cool justice system, our society as a whole, give the benefit of the doubt to police officers and not give the benefit of the doubt to, to sexual assault cops. So it's kind of, you kind of get the, 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 the double edge kind of lack of trust there, right? Well, police officers are extra trusted and people who accuse anyone of sexual assault are automatically viewed from the position of skepticism. So there's like yeah, a healthy yeah. system there, I think. Yeah. Uh, Gosh. That girl was incredibly brave, though. I mean, she I like mean, almost immediately, I think she immediately like went to the hospital and, and tried, you know, the rape kit started. I right. mean, they, you know, it, she did absolutely everything the right, the way she was supposed to do it, you know, and that was incredible and brave of her, you know? So you have written um, so many uh, great pieces. You have did the, the piece recently on the cost of your 4th of July and all of these great uh, articles recently. Is there any particular investigative piece that stands out to you in, in your career that is most meaningful or that you, you know, feel most proud of? It's like asking who's your favorite child, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my... But everyone, I'm sure, I'm sure, I, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure parents might have parents too. Um, my, yeah, we did. <laughs> my, my favorite, I know, I think the one that sort of stuck closest to my heart, I think the one that like, when people ask for club samples, the one I send, I, well, I'm going to say two. Right? One of them was a story I did um, a couple years ago about this man named, uh, uh, named, named uh, James Anderson, who was James Craig Anderson. He goes by Craig. She was, she was killed by a group of white teenagers who, who ran him over uh, in this truck in, in Jackson, Mississippi, while shouting racial slurs. And it, uh, I mean, there, there was obviously a, a lot of angles to unpack in the case. Um, you know, one of which was this idea, and this was 20, you know what was 2015. Um, the thing that I think that drew me the story was this idea that these teenagers had already developed these really viral, virulent, and vicious racist beliefs, you know, like, I think we like to have this idea that, okay, maybe people of a certain generation that were, like, living through the civil rights era, okay, maybe they're still racist, but surely their kids will kind of Mm, learn from the progress of society and all that. And sort of, so that was kind of the first thing that caught my eye, but what the story ended up being about was the grief of the, the man's husband, who sort of had to deal with this question of whether or not to forgive them. And I think for a lot of people who are crime victims, and especially people who are hate crime victims, there tends to be this sort of the, 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 the closure of the case comes when the, the, the perpetrators go to prison and the family of the, the grieving family of the loved one of, of the of the victim forgives them. And, and that sort of right. creates this 
this, this, this circle of, of, of harmony that we can all kind of move forward on. Um, but, but, but the husband, um, his name is James Bradfield, he did not forgive him and he felt pressure to forgive him. And one of the things I was really interested in exploring that story was how he felt and why he did, why, why his feelings were okay, why the way he processed those emotions were reflective of how a lot of other people in similar situations have processed um, those emotions. Um, and so it's kind of a story that I come into thinking would be about um, the existence of, of, of racism amongst the new generation sort of morphed into a story about grief and about how we reckon with these sort of violent hate crimes that have not disappeared as much as we think or, or assume they may have. Um, so, so that story spoke to my heart. Um, and another one that, that I really have, have appreciated um, in hindsight was a story I did about a guy named um, Clarence Harrison, who was wrongfully convicted of a crime in the 80s, spent about 20-some years in prison, um, and then, you know, then, then, then got released when lawyers in, you know, all these exoneration projects looked into his case, found new evidence, and, and got him out of prison. You know, we've seen a million stories like these in the last few years. Yes. But the thing that, right, you know, and every year there's more, there's a record number of exonerations every year. Um, but what sort of stood out to me about this story was that Clarence got a million dollars from the state of Georgia um, in compensation, which is better than a lot of people. That a lot of people, because of state laws that restrict the amount of compensation that exonerees can get, get nowhere near a million dollars. He gets a million dollars. This huge write up right up in the newspaper. He's on CNN. It's a fairy tale story. Uh, but what sort of didn't get covered and what a lot of people didn't learn about, um, until, until, you know, I found it out much later was that by the time I, you know, caught up with him maybe two years after, um, he got that exoneration, but he was broke and that money was all gone. And what happened was he had sort of fallen victim to these conversions of factors, right? So like one, he had zero financial literacy because he spent his entire adulthood mm-hmm. in prison. You know, didn't, didn't know how to use a credit card. That's like back when he, you know, he would tell me these stories about how when he first got out of prison, like before he had gone to prison, there was no sort of credit card readers at the gas station, you know, and then by the time he got out, he had no idea how to like pay for gas, like small things like that. Yeah. But also he just got taken advantage of by, in particular, these sort of lending companies. These, these, and you may have seen ads for this like kind of around the way, but these companies that offer like a lump sum in exchange for your sort of long-term payment, right? So, so a lot of people that get lawsuits, um, kind of like lawsuit awards and things, like you might see it in the news, someone gets a big lawsuit and it's like, you know, they're going to get $200,000. You don't get that all at once. Usually it's a, right. it's a process. So Clarence didn't get his money all at once. He was getting it in like chunks. But he kind of, you know, he missed out on two decades of his life. He wanted to start over. He wanted to start his own business. Had all these plans. He wanted to buy a house. So he ends up you know, trading in a lot of his annuity payments uh, for these lump sum um, payments to the company without really looking at the fine print without really knowing the details. David had no choice. Also, because he's like a 60-year-old man, he's like, what, you know, I don't want this money 20 years from now when I'm dead. I want all right. money, as much money as I can get now. Uh, and when I did the math, it turned out that of the million dollars that he would have gotten or was supposed to be gotten, he had traded essentially that million dollars for two hundred thousand dollars, and God. that, yeah, yeah, and like between like that was just kind of how the math worked, and and it, it all happened kind of slowly, 
and in kind of these incremental exchanges where he didn't just trade the million dollars to go into grand. It was like, we're going to trade, you know, three payments in, you know, 2030 for one payment now. And like the math was all sort of complicated. And so I think what I wanted to kind of capture in that story was that the fairy tale doesn't sort of end right when they get out of prison. That there's sort of the, all these long-term, equally rooted consequences and problems that will continue to afflict someone that gets exonerated. And as much as we want to sort of hold on to this idea of righting wrongs, that process doesn't end as soon as they get out of prison. That they're still kind of much more challenging. I mean, Clarence would call it the so-called free world, because he would say he never really felt that, you know, the world he entered was, was sort of ready for him or that he was ready for it. Right. And I wonder if there's any organizations... Or, or, or groups that could then help someone who's been exonerated acclimate or help them in some way to get reacclimated to the world, especially being gone for so long. Yeah, I mean, there's some, right? There's some, yeah. but nowhere near enough. And also connecting people with those organizations is also a challenge. Right. These organizations are also like underfunded and overworked and have a ton of people that they're trying to help out and, and and like for a while, Clarence got a lot of attention to these groups, but eventually there are other people who have injustices that need to be, you know, righted. And, and so kind of the attention goes to them. So that, that's sort of one of the challenges. Oh, it's incredibly sad. Incredibly sad. Oh my goodness. So what, what, do you have anything sort of in the works or how do you see we're in this election year? <laughs> so um, I always like to ask about what journalists think they're, role is in society as far as politics are concerned, especially as politics are currently. So uh, what is your take on that? What do you think your role as a journalist is uh, yeah. as far? I, I, I think I think it's the same role I've always had, which is to sort of unearth the truth and, and, and facts that powerful people don't want unearthed. Um, I, I think there's obviously a big conversation about how journalists should approach their responsibility in terms of in terms of not kind of hewing to this false sense of, of objectivity um, and not sort of hewing to this sort of main sort of white cis male gaze that sort of sets the landscape. Um, and, and I think those are all like great discussions and they're complicated discussions. Um, what I sort of try to hold on to is like the bedrock is just to like report and find facts and find truth that people don't know or that powerful people want to hide um, and just kind of focus on that. And I think in that sense, the job hasn't changed and the job is no different now than it would be in any other year, uh, whether or not there's an election. Um, right. But obviously, I think it's also naive to think that nothing is different now, right? There's, there's a whole there's, there's a whole slice of the population that will not trust anything they read in certain publications. Right, right. and people saying that they shouldn't trust journalists as well. Right. So. Right. And, and I, I, I try to, I mean, I think every journalist, you know, we all have sort of our own responsibilities based on what we report. I think one thing I try to do is focus on the people on the ground. Um, and I think that, like, the closer you get to the ground floor, the more you can make a story based on the humanity of the characters involved. Oftentimes, I think the less readers will view it through the eyes of partisanship. And I think mm-hmm. the human experience at the end of the day is kind of, it is what it is. And, and I think people, you know, will, will, a, a 
at their root, I think people like to be empathetic when, when given the chance to be empathetic. And I found that sometimes I'll write a story that, you know, has all sorts of political subtext around it in terms of criminal justice policy, in terms of kind of the role admit, various administrations have had in, in, in pushing that policy. But I'll get, you know, emails back from people across the political spectrum just, you know, feeling bad for the person at the center of the story or, or feeling that certain policies need to be changed or that, you know, the criminal justice system is broken. And, and I think that the closer you can get to the ground level, the closer you can get telling the stories of the people most impacted, um, I think the more you can sort of get around or transcend the, the sort of habits we have these days to immediately come into a story, either distrusting it or, or completely trusting it, as opposed to just kind of reading it as it is and seeing where the facts stand. Well, I think that's amazing because there is something lost right now. I think there's this this more like us versus them attitude on, on a lot of levels. And a lack of empathy. Um, and a lack of empathy. And then when we get back to that humanizing each other and not being like, these people are bad and they're taking or whatever. When we get back to a level that we're all human or have experiences that are the same or empathize on the, on another level, um, it is going to be a better place to yes. be, you know, yes. because I think we've lost that sense of humanity with each, with each other. So it's yeah. it, on bad. It's, and it's, it's, it's affected everything. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and I mean, we're, we're in Florida and so we're, ha- we have oh record high numbers all, all the time. And a lot of people are refusing to wear a mask. It's very difficult. So it's like just not realizing that you're affecting everyone around you. And it's really scary. Yeah. I don't know if this is, I don't know if I believe in this take a hundred percent, but I do wonder like how, like to look like these days, so such a high percentage of our interactions are just with people sort of through text on a computer screen. Mm. And that has created like a lot of incredible benefits. And uh, for example, it's like a lot easier to be a reporter during a pandemic in 2020 with the technology we have than it would have been like 50 years ago when you could even find people on Facebook yeah. or, or whatever. But I, I do wonder to what degree, if we have had a loss of empathy over the years, I wonder to what degree it's, it's caused by the fact that we just have sort of fewer face-to-face human interactions. And, and, yeah, and, that distance. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a lot easier to kind of demonize someone when mm-hmm. when your entire sort of understanding of them and, and interaction with them is sort of through this, this, this filter. Yeah, right. when you control with comments or, I mean, we're talking about just, it could be, like, there's a there's a website called nextdoor.com. I'm not sure if you're familiar <laughs> with it, but um, it's, it was in my neighborhood, like I started it for the neighborhood and it's basically like a, it's supposed to be a social media site for your neighborhood. Yeah. Like and I you, need a plumber, you know, yeah, and you and, go on there or you go on and you're like, I lost my dog. It's supposed to be just neighborly, mm-hmm. like, Hey, what's up? It has turned in the last few years into like the greatest cesspool ever. And the worst part is like, you can't be on there unless you show your name and your address. So literally someone living next to store to you is calling you like an asshole. Like he's calling <laughs> you names. And I'm like, wow, this person lives directly behind me. And it's like this law lo- and it's, but it's so close and familiar, but yet it's, yet, not, yet it's so yeah. dirty and nasty. And it is that disconnection that you're talking to a human being who literally lives in your neighborhood. There's no, um, there's no shame in the tearing someone down yeah. because it's through a computer screen. So that's exactly what you're saying. It's so real. And it's also when it gets political, it's even worse, you know. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today and taking the time to talk to us. It's really just been such a pleasure. 
Oh my God, this is so wonderful. And your articles are so, so great. And I, you know, uh, everyone just check out uh, the website and we'll have the links to uh, the website and uh, articles that you guys can check out. Yes. Thank you so much, Albert. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. All right. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you want to learn more about this week's guest, please follow the episode notes on our blog at themuckpodcast.fireside.fm and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level, Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for The Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.